Well, hello everyone. This is Ron Bush with Ron Bush Consulting Incorporated, and you're listening to Chatting with Ron. Chatting with Ron is a, a segment of the information playground that provides an opportunity for you to hear from leaders who are making a difference. They may be authors, as is the case today. They may be CEOs or government officials or from any walk of life. Uh, he also happens to be a CEO, our guest does today. But Chatting with Ron is broadcast on WVLP-FM on Monday mornings from 8 to 9 and Friday afternoons from 1 to 2. WVLP is a local FM station in Valparaiso, Indiana, located at 103.1 on your FM dial or stream us from WVLP.org. Check out our, their website to find out all that they're doing in the community and how you can be a part of that. Check out ronbushconsulting.com to check out what we're doing and how you can be a part of that. If you prefer to listen to us on demand, you can find Chatting with Ron on Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and more. Uh, just look for us on your favorite podcast platform under Chatting with Ron. We're hosted through Anchor FM, and if you're wanting to try pad podcasting yourself, I thoroughly recommend them. Uh, it's a new relationship, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, our guest today, I've really been looking forward to. I've been reading his book and, and just in thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, his name is Dr. Glenn Sapersky. He's known as the disaster avoidance expert, and he's on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the most effective decision-making strategies. He has over two decades of consulting. If you're watching this on, uh, on video, we're also in the process of going to uh, uh, YouTube. Uh, so look for chatting with Ron on, on YouTube to find it. If you're watching him, uh, he doesn't look old enough to have all this experience, but um, he's got two decades, over two decades of consulting, coaching, and training experience as CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts and over 15 years of experts um, experience rather in academia as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. Dr. Sapersky writes for Inc. Magazine, Time, Scientific American, Fast Company, and Psychology Today. Uh, a best-selling author in his new book, or the one we're discussing today, he's got another one coming out we'll, we'll catch at the end of the, uh, of the program. But the one we're talking about today is Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Welcome, Dr. Sapersky. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your compliments about my appearance. My parents gave me good genes, for which I'm grateful to them. Oh, you, you, uh, they did indeed. Uh, so uh, let's get into it. I, I, again, I'm thoroughly enjoying the book. You've got exercises to go with it, and I, I find them extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. How did your own background and experience lead to creating this approach to decision-making? Because it's different. I mean, we all yeah. talk about go with your gut. That's common knowledge or common yes. wisdom. This is yes. uh, the opposite. And common knowledge is very wrong in many cases, <laughs> and in this one it is as well. But yes, sure, happy to talk about it. So my parents also had that common knowledge of go with your gut, follow your intuition. And they each felt when they felt they were right, they believed they were right, which is essentially what going with your gut means. You feel you're right, you do, the, you do it. And unfortunately, they often felt they were right about opposite things. <laughs> so for example, and that's often how gut decision-making goes wrong. So my, let's say, you know, my mom liked nice clothing and she'd buy a $50 sweater and come home. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate. So he'd yell at her and say, no sweater should cost over $20. <laughs> so they had a lot of these small little conflicts that already as a kid, I saw were not very helpful for mm -hmm. having a good, healthy quality relationship. And really, I mean, $30 difference really doesn't matter that much anyway. So I already saw that. And they had bigger conflicts as well. Uh, the worst time that I remember was with my dad. So he was a real estate agent and he had a variable salary based on commissions. And there was this one six month period where he made a lot of money, but he hid the money from my mom. He told her he made very little money and he bought an apartment on the side leased it out to some people in a couple of years once she found out she was very upset she was very pissed they had a huge big blowout fight and actually ended up separating for a while mm. so i lived with my mom 
And, you know, that gave me, you know, I saw my dad rarely. That was pretty hard for me. And that gave me some time to reflect on how terrible, terrible, terrible the decision-making of adults can be about financial issues. And so seeing that my parents aren't gods and that they made really bad decisions helped me see that our typical decision-making advice and science is, is not very good at all. And then I was growing up. So I was born in 81. I came of age around the dot-com boom in 1999 when companies like Webvan, Pets.com, and Boo.com were booming. And just a couple of years later, when I was 21, was the dot-com bust, 2002, when all of these companies went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Billions and billions and billions down the drain. Lots of people lost their life savings. And the people who were the heroes in the Wall Street Journal and the the in 1999, you know, tech leaders who are partying, like it's 1999 for those who remember that Prince song, they were now the, <laughs> the zeros. They just, you know, a couple of years later, they were in the Wall Street Journal for all the wrong reasons. Right. And yeah, so that was kind of one. And even worse were the Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco and similar financial accounting scandals around that time when Bernie Ebers and all the other leaders used fraudulent accounting to hide their losses from the dot-com bust. Now, that was horrible decision-making. They only staved off the inevitable by a year or two, and then they were in the front pages of the Wall Street Journal in handcuffs you know, and going to jail for a long time. It was, you know, the tech leaders made bad decisions, not in a malicious way. They thought they were doing the right thing. They actually did the wrong thing. But Bernie Ebers and so on, they knew they were doing the wrong thing. And it was so bad for them. I mean, they threw their whole careers down the drain for what, a couple, one, one or two more years of bonuses? The money didn't matter. You know, that's not what it was about. Uh, we could talk later what it was about from my research on this topic. But that wasn't what, the, what it was about. They clearly made horrible decisions. So I saw that the heroes of decision making and you know, titans of industry were also the ones who, you know, in the Wall Street Journal in 1999 would also be the ones who would be the losers, the worst, the failures of decision making. So that made it more clear to me that it wasn't only my parents, that it was pretty much everyone who was following bad decision making strategies. And if you look and it applies across all industries. So if you look at there was a research study done by Paul Carroll and Chunkamui of the large companies that went bankrupt from 1981 to 2007. So before the financial uh, crisis of 2008. And what they found was that there were 423 companies that went bankrupt that had revenues of over 500 million per year. And they found that of these companies, 46% of the companies, their bankruptcy could be attributed purely to horrendous decision-making, really bad, terrible decision-making was the reason for their failure. So for example, Polaroid is a classic example. You know, they were looking at the, what was happening with the digital camera industry in 1999. You know, remember Polaroid, shake it like a Polaroid picture for those who remember that. <laughs> you know, maybe that ages me. But anyway, <laughs> so in, they were looking at the digital camera growth and they thought that, well, hey, they analyzed the bottom line. They saw that if they went into digital camera, their margins would be 38%. But their current film margins, profit margins, were 60%. So they decided to stick with film and not go into digital cameras. Well, you know what? They discovered that 60% of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and they went bankrupt in 2001. By contrast, Fujifilm also was facing that exact same situation. It was facing the digital camera growth in the early 1990s. But they saw that digital cameras, you know, they were less profitable than film but they were the future and so they squeezed the maximum profit out of their film and invested into digital and they made the right decisions so these are the kinds of decisions that make or break companies and 46 percent of these companies went bankrupt due purely to bad decision making by their leadership so that caused me to really look at how do leaders make decisions how do they make good decisions how do they make bad decisions and how can we prevent them from making bad decisions and making good, help them make good ones, not only leaders, but everyone, professionals of all sorts. And they went into cons- to studying this topic, which naturally led into training, teaching others on it, consulting, coaching, and so on, which is what I've been doing for the last 20 years since I got interested in this topic. And I went into academia. So I have spent over 15 years in academia, 
studying and researching this topic, publishing peer-reviewed papers in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. And that's what my new book combines. It combines my 20 years of experience consulting and coaching folks on these topics, along with the cutting-edge research on how do we address the problems that come from our in bad, bad intuitive decision-making. That's why the book is called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Great, great. Well, you mentioned some, uh, some poor decisions by CEOs and businesses in the past. Let's talk about some recent business disasters in the news that will likely haunt the company for years. <laughs> Probably the biggest one that's very, very prominent in the news right now is Boeing. I mean, look at what's happening there. They made some hor horrendous decisions around the 737 MAX. I mean, right now we're getting all the emails that are coming out saying how they cut corners and all the chaos and incompetence of their companies and neglect of safety and fooling regulators into approving the 737 MAX early on were much quicker and sooner than it should have been approved. And we know now looking at these the internal decision-making process that it was really bad, that Boeing cut corners, they were way too confident about the quality of their planes, and that led to 346 people being killed. And of course, even once the first plane went down, Boeing was very resistant to doing anything, any serious investigation, which is why eventually the second plane went down. Even at that point, Boeing was very reluctant to ground its planes. It had to be forced by aviation authorities around the world to ground its planes as opposed to doing that voluntarily, which it should, really should have done after the first plane when it discovered that, hey, there was an actual malfunction that was causing things to go wrong. And look at how much money Boeing lost right now. I mean, 346 lives, that's, that's terrible. But And right now at the same time, looking at the financial impact, because that's what companies look at, care about, Boeing has lost over, over 26 million in market billion, that's a B, not an M, 26 billion market capitalization, direct charges, just direct costs of over 10, million, 10 billion. So again, 10 billion, market cap over 26 billion. And of course, the 10 billion are just so far, there's going to be much, much more costs down the road. And its CEO is fired and other top executives are leaving because of really bad internal decision-making. So which we can dive into and the reasons for this decision-making but this is just a classical example of what's happening with, in terms of bad decision-making right now and how it's leading companies into really, really tough positions. You know, it, it, it reminds me, and I'd like to explore that just a moment. Um, yeah. In the 1970s, I, I can't remember if it was 1970, 1972, uh, Ford made a similar decision. They had a, a, a Pinto that uh, when hit in the rear, would it, the gas tank would explode. People Oof. died. Uh, yes. I forget how many, but it seemed like a lot at the time. Uh, a lot of money was lost, and they lost a lot of reputation. Now, they gained back in the recession because they were the only ones that didn't ask for money, and there was this, this, all, this whole kind of uh, oh, uh, press or propaganda that they've got. They've done a great job advertising, and I, I guess over... 50 years now, they've managed to recover it. But um, but at the time, it really hurt them. And at the okay. time, the idea that you would choose, what really hurt them was, was in the, the court hearings. Uh, it came to light that the, uh, I forget who was running for it at the time, but they made the conscious decision. It was easier to pay the, the damages <laughs> when people died. It was cheaper to yeah. pay those than it was to... Uh, <laughs> to to bring all those cars back and fix them so that they wouldn't explode. It yes. sounds to me like we've got almost the same scenario today with Boeing, hmm. um, where you've got, you don't have the smoking gun, so to speak, where they've made that uh, conscious decision, but they've made this very short-sighted decision. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to pull those planes in. We're going to... Uh, um, to put them out there and, uh, you know, I guess hope that everything goes right. I, I don't know <laughs> why else you would do that uh, yeah. unless you're a believer in chance. Um, well, I think they, they are believers in chance. And there's, it's important to draw the difference between Ford and Pinto, where the leadership made a really clear decision to, uh, at the cost of very clear cost of human lives, to not fix the cars when they should have fixed the cars. 
you know, in a similar situation, you can go to the tobacco companies when they very clearly knew that tobacco was causing cancer, as we now know from their internal documentation, and they put out propaganda statements to falsely claim that tobacco wasn't causing cancer. Mm-hmm. So we have that horrible decision making on the part of tobacco companies. <laughs> so we know that some businesses really do this stuff maliciously, some business leaders. And of course, you know, Enron, WorldCom and Tyco fall into that same category, maliciously bad decision making that causes terrible grave damage for people. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I'm think, what I see happening with Boeing is not so malicious. What is going on there is one of the cognitive biases that we're talking about here, the neuroscience behind why we make bad gut decisions. Mm -hmm. They weren't maliciously making a deliberate decision. Let's put out a crappy plane that will fall, that will crash and hurt people because that's, that wasn't their mindset. It, what their mindset was, was one of these cognitive biases, the dangerous judgment errors that we all fall into called the normalcy bias. Now the normalcy bias refers to the fact that when we look at what is going to happen in the future, we judge it by the immediate past. And we think that the future will look like the immediate past. We don't understand how likely the future is to be disrupted, much more different than the past compared to what we assume it is going to be. So that's the normalcy bias. And what Boeing was looking at was the fact that its history of putting out airplanes each past model, each new model of its airplane actually proved to be safer than past models. Mm-hmm. So if you look at their since the 1970s, each new model that they put out had repeatedly less accidents, was more safe than previous models. So it just wasn't in their mindset. They couldn't imagine, literally couldn't imagine that a new airplane that they put out, their new model would break this pattern. It would, they had this pattern in mind and they couldn't imagine any other pattern happening. So they fell into one of these classical dangerous cognitive biases, the dangerous judgment errors that we all make because of what the research by, in neuroscience shows. That's how our gut is wired. That's how our intuitions are wired. That's how we feel. And our feelings determine about 80 to 90% of our decision-making processes. And they just felt that the new model, the new plane must be safe. And therefore, they can cut corners. So if you feel that way, if your feeling, if your perception is that, hey, this new plane is totally safe, you know, they just ignore, dismissed any information to the contrary, and they cut corners on the approval process because they're like, well, this is just, you know, stupid government bureaucracy. Who cares, right? We'll, mm-hmm. we'll screw around with it. We'll just cut, cut some corners. We'll fool them. And then we'll get the approval faster and everything will be fine. Everyone will be safe and we'll just be you know, making money. So that was their mindset. And that unfortunately mindset is what so many companies fall into in positions of safety, in positions of security. They, fe- they feel that they will not be the ones who will get into trouble. They feel that, hey, nothing terrible has happened to us in the past, in the recent past, and therefore nothing will terrible will happen in the future. I mean, you see stock market bubbles happening Again, the dot-com boom and bust, the housing bubble in 2008, 2007, the recent IPO bubble where companies like WeWork and Lyft and so on, their IPOs were much higher than their actual eventual prices. And WeWork didn't even get to the IPO stage. We have bubbles happening all the time. And this is the same phenomenon. People imagine that the recent past will be will indicate what the future is and they can't imagine that the future will be really disrupted when sometimes it actually is. Interesting. You know, I I remember growing up, uh, there was a a philosopher by the name of George Santayana, I think, that said those who who do not know their history Mm -hmm. are doomed to repeat it or words to that effect. Um, There's, I think there's a time and place for that, but, but you bring up an excellent point. It doesn't mean that we're going to rightly interpret that, or even that history will affect the, the future or the present because we've got technology, we've got all these other things. Let me ask you a question. Are there any times in business decisions when it is entirely right to go with your gut? When you want to 
trust your gut more is when your gut is when you're in a situation that's similar to what our gut is adapted for. And our gut is adapted for the savannah environment. When we lived in small tribes of 15 to 150 people, and when we were struggling to actually make sure that we were able to get food, that we were able to fight off predators. And it was very important for us at that time to be very tribal. Mm -hmm. So to go with, to focus on the tribe, because hunter, we were living as hunters and foragers and tribes of 15 people to 150 people. So when you, as it was very important for us to be tribal, it was very important for us to know our tribal members. So if you know somebody for a long time and they start to act in a weird way and you start to have negative feelings about them, that's when it's time to be a little bit suspicious of what they're proposing to you. So if you have a business collaborator who's been around for a long time and suddenly you feel that their new proposal is off, that's a time to be suspicious. However, you, sh you are much less capable of judging people who you don't know than you feel you are. That's just the intuitive situation because of this tribalism. Due to this tribalism, we had to, in the Savannah environment, very quickly, very immediately, judge who was part of our tribe or not. Or if we made the wrong judge, if we didn't make a quick enough judgment, we might die. <laughs> and in that time period, what being in your tribe, being part of your tribe, meant someone who looks like you, who thinks like you, who has your qualities, now, that sort of judgment is very bad in the modern business environment because it's globalized. You have to work across various demographics in order to succeed, to thrive in business. So to new people, we should not make these judgments and we shouldn't trust our judgments. Now, that's going to seem very weird to people who, um, to, who are hearing this in the podcast because they all the time trust their judgments about new people. They think, well, hey, I can tell who's lying, who's not. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't. There's extensive research showing. We, we have research done on the NSA, FBI, say police forces, whatever, of uh, secret security service, showing that people they don't know, they, give, they show them uh, camera observations of people they don't know who are either telling the truth or who are lying. And the police officer, the security agent, was asked to guess whether they're lying or not. Well, their accuracy was 52% on average, which is just about as good as throwing a coin, a splitting a coin. So, you know, you're not going to do better than a trained security agent. I think the Secret Service was the only one who did better than flipping a coin. So you are really not going to do better than them. And you can't trust your intuitions about new potential business partners, employees, and whatnot. That's why there's much more effective techniques that you can use to assess them that are counterintuitive as opposed to trusting your intuitions. I want to follow it up with getting into some of that, but but first it, it strikes me, you know, I used to be one of those people that thought I was a good judge of character, and then I, I started hiring people for a living and realized I, mm -hmm. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Um, I've heard all my life, and, and, and you hear this now, trust your heart, trust your instincts. Uh, yeah, well, maybe well, maybe not so much. <laughs> there's, there's a reason that there's a 40% divorce rate in this country for people who trust their heart, right? <laughs> and, so, you know, again, about as good as flipping a coin, right? 40% and nearly as good. So what's what are some things we can do? You, you just mentioned it. There are some things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm noticing in your book, I've made notes here, uh, uh, SWAT, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are, are false mm -hmm. comforts. They're, they're traditional planning assessments, but nah, they're really not that effective. I've mm -hmm. taught that at university. I've, I've been a professor and I've taught in business classes, uh, in, especially when I recall an entrepreneurship, to use that system. Mm -hmm. Now I'm uh, finding out, well, what else should I be doing? Well, how should I be approaching it different? Well, let me just clarify why this SWAT is not helpful for folks who don't know much about it. The SWOT analysis looks at a group or individual having an evaluation of their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats facing their career or their business or whatnot. And unfortunately, the SWOT is not very helpful at all. It gives you a sense of false comfort, like Ron mentioned, because we as especially entrepreneurs, especially people in business and leadership positions, tend to be way too optimistic about their future, about their business, about their skills, about their abilities. 
it's natural, it's intuitive, it's harmful, very harmful for our business that when we're too optimistic. So we tend to list too many strengths, too many opportunities, not nearly enough weaknesses, not nearly enough threats. Whenever you do a consulting contract for a company or a coaching contract for an individual and they have done a SWOT, I go through it with them and they see and I show them that, hey, are these really your strengths and opportunities? What about all of these, you know, kind of, you're really exaggerating here. And what about these threats and uh, risks and weaknesses that they're not putting in? Well, that's what happens. We tend mm -hmm. to underestimate these problems. And as a result, when we invest our resources and make our strategic plans on the idea that we are much stronger, have many more opportunities, many less risks and weaknesses and threats, than we actually do, that's when we get into a lot of trouble. That's when why companies that are growing are especially likely to fail. Because when they invest into growth, they tend to not see all the kinds of problems that are likely to face them when they run out of cash, for example. That's a frequent thing that happens. So that's, that's a big problem. And the pe people in a leadership position who aren't used to how to grow a company effectively, you know, from I don't know, 50 people to 150 people. It, you know, 50 people, you can actually know everyone and communicate to them, although it's hard. 150 people, that's much harder. So if you try to use the same methods to manage 150 people as you do 50 people, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. And, you know, people burn out and so on. So that's, that's bad. That's why you shouldn't use SWOT. Now, what you need to do is, first of all, learn about all these cognitive biases, all these dangerous judgment errors that tend to cause us to make really bad decisions. We already talked about the normalcy bias. We talked about the optimism bias. There are over 100 cognitive biases out there that cause us to make really bad decisions. My book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, looks at the 30 most dangerous ones and how you can figure out whether you fall into them or you don't and address them. Now, chapter seven has an assessment which shows you the behaviors associated with each specific cognitive bias. So for example, the first question would ask you, hey, when over the last year, how much, how many times, what's the percentage of times when your projects went over time or over budget? or likely both. And mm -hmm. so, you know, whenever I ask that in a training for executives, I get anything from, let's say, 5% to 98%. <laughs> and, you know, when it's 5%, that's totally fine. It's not a big deal. When it's 98%, you're in a huge, huge world of pain. <laughs> so you don't want that situation happening to you. So that's the cognitive bias known as the planning fallacy, where people tend to feel really good about themselves, about their plans, and so they tend to not see the problems and mistakes that might happen with their plans. And that's something you need to learn about if that's something you and your and or your team tend to fall into. So first of all, learning about these problems is the first step. And then there are specific counterintuitive techniques that are described in the book and can talk about them now that would be effective to address each uh, that would be effective to address a number of these cognitive biases altogether. Why don't we take a, a quick, uh, just a, a, a pause um, so that I can identify the station and, uh, and remind folks who they're listening to and what they're listening to. And when we come back, let's talk about some of those. So, um, so you're listening to chatting with Ron. I'm Ron Bush with Ron Bush consulting and, um, Chatting with Ron is, uh, is really an opportunity for leaders who uh, are making a difference. They can be authors, as Dr. Sapersky is. Uh, they can be CEOs, government officials, or from any walk of life. We're broadcast on WVLP. Uh, that's an FM station local to Valparaiso, Indiana. We're on there Monday mornings from 8 to 9 and from 1 to 2 Friday afternoons. Uh, Best to stream that from WVLP.org. And let me encourage you to, uh, to visit ronbushconsulting.com as well. But uh, the podcast part of this uh, is, can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Overcast, and uh, Breaker, and there's a few more. Uh, you can also find the video portion of this on YouTube. Look for Chatting with Ron. And... Uh, with that, uh, Dr. Sapersky, do you have, uh, um, would you like to provide a way for people if they have questions or thoughts about this, uh, this program um, for people to get in touch with you, either through email or your website? Uh, if you would, uh, 
I'd like to, to uh, offer that now and then again at the end of the program as well. Sounds good. Well, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, is published by a good traditional business publisher called Career Press. So it's available in physical bookstores everywhere, Barnes & Noble, your indie bookstores, university bookstores, and of course online on, again, on Barnes & Noble or Amazon or anywhere else you get your books. My content is available on DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Again, DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. There's going to be a lot of articles, videos, podcasts, white papers, manuals, multimedia packages, and consulting, coaching, speaking services. And I want to make sure that you check out DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight-module video-based course on decision-making 101 called the Wise Decision Maker course. Again, free eight-module video-based course, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me there, ask me questions. Dr. Gleb Tsipursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Excellent, excellent. I'm going to check out that uh, eight-module uh, video that you mentioned. It's an excellent website, uh, so I encourage folks to go there. So, um, so let's pick up where we were. Yeah. What are, what are some of those the, the, uh, things that we can do to help make better decisions? So I want to talk about three things. One is the how to make quick decisions fast and effectively. So folks have to make a, in business have to make a lot of quick decisions, and there's a technique that they can use to make their quick decisions much more effective and much less risky than they otherwise are. Then there's a second technique which they should use. That's a much more in-depth technique. That's for more important decisions when you're deciding to launch a new product, move your headquarters, make a key hire. That's about an hour-long technique. And finally, there are 12 techniques, that 12 mental habits to improve your mental fitness and address each of these dangerous judgment errors effectively. So let's talk about the quick technique first. I want to make sure that you understand it's a really quick technique. It asks you to ask five questions about any decision that you make. And for, for understanding how quick it is, there was actually this technique, and a version of this technique was taught to firefighting leaders in the UK. Now, firefighting leaders in the UK, they literally had to make decisions in the heat of the moment. <laughs> you know, they have much less time than business leaders to make a decision about how to invest their firefighting resources. And research, when there was research done on them, cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics, showed that about 80% of firefighting mistakes come from human error. And so in order to address these kinds of mistakes, you know, the, which can have much more danger than a business bankruptcy, then what they did was have them ask three questions about any firefighting situation in which they find themselves and then invest the resources of firefighting accordingly. And they found that asking these questions didn't, was, didn't actually decrease the speed of their decisions, but it greatly decreased the number of mistakes. So... Let's talk about the five questions you should ask in the heat of the moment to make sure that you don't screw up an important decision like a client meeting or sending an important email to somebody that you don't want to upset <laughs> or you know, so choosing a supplier for non-critical parts, a vendor or something like that. First question, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? So what evidence didn't I yet address? Our intuitions, our gut reactions, cause us to specifically look away from information that doesn't fit our preconceptions, that doesn't fit our beliefs. It's called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs, ignore information that doesn't. And there are a, lot, and there are a number of other cognitive biases similar to this. Now, this question, what you want to use it for, is to use it to look for information that goes against your intuitions. Try to show that you're wrong. Try to prove that you're wrong. Look for information that shows that you're wrong. If you can't find it, great. But if you can find it, that will be very useful to you. That's first. Second, what dangerous judgment errors didn't I yet fully consider? So what cognitive biases might be relevant to this question that you didn't address? With, for example, if it's a people-oriented decision about a business partner, there's a number of cognitive biases having to do with tribalism, where we tend to like people because we feel like they belong to our tribe, and that's called the halo effect. So for example, people, tall males get ahead much further and faster than shorter males. If you look at the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the male CEOs, they're overwhelmingly above six feet tall, whereas 
average male height is 5'8". That's because there's a positive association with height, which causes people to feel like these, these uh, ones that they're looking at are higher in the tribal hierarchy and make mistakes in terms of evaluating these people. And there are many, many others. So you want to know what kind of cognitive biases are in general associated with your specific decision and whether you've addressed them. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest you do? So think about someone who's a trusted objective advisor to you. Think about, you know, maybe Ron here, someone who you trust, someone with a little angel on your shoulder. What would you tell a friend to do in this situation? The usefulness of this question is that it takes you outside of yourself and you get about 50% of the benefit just by asking this question. And of course, you can get the other 50% of the benefit by calling this person, whoever the trusted objective advisor is, or if you're a millennial, texting this person. <laughs> Fourth, how have I considered all the ways, have I considered all the ways that can fail? What have you done to address all the ways this decision can fail? So for example, let's, talk, let's say you're writing an email to a client. Have you read the email, an important email? Have you read the email from a hostile perspective? Let's say your client would be in a bad mood. Imagine that, right? <laughs> Have you read the email from the perspective of someone who's in a bad mood? Can anything in the email be interpreted in a negative fashion, in a harmful fashion that would damage your relationship with the client? And believe me, it happened before with, with me and I've learned to really read my emails, important emails to clients from the perspective of a hostile, negative mood client. So that's something that you want to avoid. And then imagine all the ways whatever you're doing can fail and address it in advance. So revise the email to make sure that it contains no ambiguity and that you make and that somebody even in a negative mood wouldn't mistreat it. Finally, what would cause you to change your mind? So how, what would cause you to reconsider this decision? When we're in decision-making state, kind of this executive state, we are in a very different mental state than when we're implementing the decision. So when we're implementing the decision, when we get information that might, that cause us to actually reconsider it, we are much less capable of doing so. So for example, Boeing having the first plane crash go down should have really reconsidered its decisions, but it was not in a mental state. The leadership wasn't in a mental state to reconsider the decision. So you want to decide in advance what would cause you to change your mind. For example, with the email, let's say uh, if you don't get a response within a week, you will call your client on the phone. That can be a specific chain point where you have that mental reconsideration, revision of the situation. So if you don't have that, then you'll be you know, biting your nails every day, waiting for the client to respond to you and not sure what to do. But if you decide that, hey, I'll leave this alone and then I'll revisit in a week, call the client, that's a very specific, clear decision-making point. And then you'll be peaceful and just go forward. So those five questions, I just talk, you know, call, I spent a couple of minutes talking them through they will greatly help you address a lot of the typical decision-making errors, the cognitive biases that you run into. Now, what they do is they minimize the risks, they remove problems. There is another technique that can help you maximize the rewards as well as remove problems, and that's for a more major decision-making strategy. But I'm gonna stop here and see if Ron has any questions about this one. Actually, I appreciate that. I, I, I've developed some of those, uh, uh, those traits just simply from bad experiences. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, one uh, on your own. Putting things in print is much harder than than uh, verbally, mm. or especially setting across from each other. When you're in, in front of somebody, uh, you've got uh, facial expressions, body language that you can communicate with. You don't you don't have that in print it, when it's uh, when it's verbal audio, like many people are. Are listening to this podcast, you at least get voice intonations or mm -hmm. or laughter and, and different things that tell you when when certain moods come are present. You don't have any of that in an email. Uh, in an email, you are um, <laughs> well. Let me just put it this way: having sent off more than one email and gotten a, a response that I did not expect, <laughs> anticipate, nor want. Uh, I learned to set and take much more time reading those emails before I hit send. And uh, and often, if I'm questionable, I'll just pick up the phone anyway and say, hey, I just sent you an email. Uh, this is my point that I'm trying to get across. I basically make the email useless, but but I don't have those situations anymore. 
where people say, oh, I got that guy's email and uh, I don't know what's wrong with him and I want anything to do with him, you know? So uh, I appreciate that. There's so much wisdom in those five questions that I, uh, uh, I, I didn't take notes quick enough to, to come back to all of them, but uh, those, are, those are excellent. Tell me the name of that uh, again, the name that you gave to the five questions so people five can questions. find it quickly sure. in the book. It's five questions to avoid decision disasters. It's going to be in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, right there. So I'm looking at which page it's going to be on. It's going to be on page something like page 18. So 18 and 19, you'll have those questions. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, it starts on page 16, and then it goes through page 18. So yeah, check excellent. those out. Uh, questions, five questions to avoid decision disasters. That's what yeah, you excellent. want to be using. So now let's move on to number two. Yes, the more in-depth decision-making technique. So this is a technique you want to use for when you have a more thorough decision to make. You want to make a serious decision. First, you want to identify the need for a decision to be made. We already gave some examples of companies like Polaroid that didn't identify the need to switch into digital or Boeing that didn't identify the need to revisit the play, the Boeing 737 max plane. So you want to identify the need for decision to be made. Or I'm, I'm an individual perspective, when I do coach clients, I often see clients who are in high level executive positions who are not actually moving along in their company as fast as they should be for a number of reasons and who aren't taking advantage of an opportunity to move to a different company or start their own business. So who are kind of stuck in their careers. And that's very often a situation for executives where they are not sufficiently thinking about the need to take action and show initiative. So that's an example of from an individual perspective. Second, gather relevant information on this topic from a variety of perspectives, especially people with whom you disagree. You want to make sure that the topic that you're making a decision about, if you're, let's say, switching jobs or you know launching a new product, let's go with launching a new product. You're, let's say you're launching a new product. Make sure to gather information not only from your biggest fans, but from all the people that you think will actually buy the product <laughs> and see what they actually think about the product. Because the early adopters of your product will be very different than the people who are the majority adopters in, well, in all likelihood of the product. So that's the second one. Then decide on the goals you want to reach and paint a clear vision of the outcome you want. Now, to give an example of a company that didn't have a clear goal, what the heck was Kmart and Sears doing combining together? They, took, they combined two struggling retailers, which into a large struggling retailer, which eventually went bankrupt. They, had, they didn't have a clear plan. They didn't really do anything to address the problems of both retailers by combining. They just kind of, you know, thought bigger is better. It wasn't. And then you see what happened. So have a clear vision, have a clear plan. What do you want? If you're launching a new product, what do you want to see happen with this new product? Envision your end ideal buyers who would actually buy the product why they would buy the product, how they would use it. And of course, then you'd want to think about how you will reach them, all the marketing and so on, how you'll produce the product. So all of these things have a clear goal of the outcomes that you want to achieve. Then develop the clear decision-making criteria for step four out of eight. Develop clear decision-making criteria to evaluate options. So if you're deciding, whether you're deciding on a hire, let's say you're trying to hire someone, think about what their salary will be. Think about, oh, how they will fit the company, what their expertise is, all of these criteria that will inform your decision and how important they are compared to each other. The same thing for your product. If you're launching a new product, think about the various criteria of this product. It can be very well made, but more expensive. So how will your, your target market respond to a higher quality product at a higher price? For example, you want to think about these things because you'll have trade-offs in various ways of making the product and maybe deciding on the target market you want to reach. Then generate viable options that can achieve your goals. You know, so if you're hiring someone, figure out the five people that you want to hire. This is one of the biggest problems actually for business leaders, generating viable options. That what the research on this topic shows is that they tend to settle very fast for the first available viable option. Now that's fine for when it's a less important decision. 
But when it's an important decision, like let, let's say you're making a key hire or you're deciding on the various features of your product, all of those things will be have a very long lasting impact on your company. So here's where you, th these are the areas where you want to maximize success. And maximizing success means spending more time on the decision-making process and making sure that you have a positive long-term impact coming from this decision going forward, rather than just quickly settling on the first available viable hire and then going forward that way not a good idea same thing with you know the features let's say supplier for your product settling on the first viable one no you want to choose a number of potential suppliers for the product you want to make for the various parts and then choose the best ones next weigh these options and pick the best of the bunch combining them so looking at your criteria how important each of the criteria are and then comparing your options on each of the criteria and their importance. So, you know, if somebody, let's say, has higher salary demands, but they would be a better fit in your company. What would you value more? You need to decide that. Same thing, Let's we talked about the quality of the product. If the quality of the product is going to be better from this supplier, but the supplier is, let's say, less reliable for some reason, how will you weigh these things off? And you need to make that decision. Then implement the option you choose. Now, implementation has a couple of components. We already talked about one that will be present in the previous one. Think about all the ways that it can fail and how you can address them in advance. So that's something that you want to decide as part of the process. You also want to decide an additional part. What are all the ways this can succeed? So let's say your product launch. How, what are all the ways that it can succeed? So for example, your product launch can succeed if it has a much wider adoption beyond your initial market. That's what happened to, let's Impossible Burger. Impossible Burger thought they were making a burger for the vegetarian vegan market. Now, when they actually came out with the burger, they saw that something weird was going on. Vegetarians and vegans were kind of meh about it, but you know, yuppie, yuppies, millennials were eating it up literally and what happened with that is that these millennials were chose to go for a less meat oriented burger because they still wanted the burger experience but they also cared about climate so it was less about saving animals than about climate change having a more sustainable burger and so that's why impossible burger and beyond burger are becoming so popular and you see companies going after the burger the vegan the vegetarian burger market who are large producers of meat products and so on because they see that hey they actually have mainstreamed the vegetarian burgers finally evaluate the implementation process and revise as needed you want to measure so here's the, the step where you measure decide on the measurements of success for example let's say with a product launch you decide that, hey, if I reach 4.5 million within the first six months, 4.5 million in revenue within the first six months, that will be great. That means my product is doing well. And you have specific metrics against which you can evaluate that. So whatever metrics are relevant to each decision. Now, if you don't meet that metric, you want to go back and seriously revise your product launch plan, maybe revise the product itself. And if you do meet that, that's great. You'll just keep going forward. So that's the, you want to make sure that you measure the success and revise things as needed over time. So that's the eight step process to maximize the positive, the successful decision, as well as to minimize the risks. And that's the process you should be using for any serious decision that will seriously impact your bottom line. Excellent, excellent. You covered a lot of ground there. I, I was uh, especially uh, interested in what you had to say about Sears because I wondered the same thing. Here's a, here's a company that owned the, the marketplace uh, early on. They and Montgomery Wards, who went bankrupt a number of years ago, um, basically were the two, they were the two ones that took technology uh, in the beginning, the catalog selling uh, to rural America and, and just developed the retail trade like it had never been seen before. Certainly stores had existed. But but uh, but using using technology to get out into 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 uh, rural America, they sold houses at one time. They sold uh, cars at one time. And you could buy anything, and you could see anything in the Sears catalog. And yet, forgetting all the lessons they learned then using new technology, 
printing and getting catalogs out. They failed to understand anything about what the internet would mean. And, and most of, of retail followed them. It's, it's yeah. only a few retailers that have managed to, to hang on. We've watched uh, uh, FAO Schwartz. We've watched uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. A lot of these stores are still in business, but they're barely hanging on or they're just coming back. And yeah. an awful lot of them are bankrupt forever simply because they didn't. Uh, you talked about having an eye to the future, looking at decisions uh, uh, moving forward. You, and we talked earlier about living in the past or, or believing that past decisions will help you make decisions about the future. It just doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's very insightful, Ron. The fa- failure to look at technology. We don't, and that's again falling into a number of biases where we tend to imagine the future is going to be like the past. And unfortunately for many people, it's not. Our world is growing increasingly disrupted. We don't know what the future will be like. And we need to actually invest resources into being as flexible and resilient as possible instead of assuming that the past will go, <laughs> the future will be as, as the past or assuming that there will be one specific future course of action. So resiliency and speed are much more important, adaptability. And that's what's something that a lot of, a lot of companies are getting wrong. It, it uh, I think you're exactly right. And I think the proof is in some of the larger companies, which you have to wonder now, uh, let's take uh, PayPal or Uber, Lyft has followed them. Those are certainly disruptive companies, mm-hmm. but now they've become major players. Mm-hmm. Amazon's become a major player. Amazon seems to, to uh, take your advice to heart. They mm-hmm. seem to be looking into all different avenues and, and uh, trying to master everything new. Um, mm-hmm. Apple, I think, is starting to be that way, although I've wondered for a while about Apple if they were going to, to go down the same road others. Do you see, do you see some of the big, the big ones, and I mentioned PayPal and, and uh, uh, Uber, do you see them making the same mistakes uh, that, that companies have made repeatedly in the past? Uh, not... Mm-hmm not using your your uh, formula for decision making mm-hmm. i definitely see companies like uber and lyft making bad mistakes and uh, really trying to invest into growth and into conflictual disruptive businesses let's say into scooters where they are actually big players right now and their reputation unlike lime and all of these companies the reputation of uber and lyft is actually hurt quite a lot when they invest into scooters and then, I mean, then actually they aren't thinking about what the consequences will be for their public relations. Same thing for, let's say, sexual harassment. I mean, Uber and Lyft are well known for not being nearly at the forefront of the sexual harassments that's going on there. And that's why the city of London has recently banned Uber from actually having licenses in the city of London. So. The city of London doesn't have any Ubers left. And that was a huge market for Uber. That's kind of, what is it, 9 million people? So it's huge and that's a huge loss. And that's an example of where they're not thinking about their reputation and not really investing into that. Whereas companies, let's say like Google, they have more thoughtfulness about their reputation and what they're investing into. Amazon also. So they're looking at various aspects that they can cover, various angles that they are not covering and that they need to cover. Right now, there are a lot, there's a lot of threats with uh, some of the more uh, edgy Democratic candidates wanting to break up big tech and so on. And that's an example of where big, te- big technology has not really focused enough on its reputation and enough on protecting its reputation, showing all the positive benefits of what they're doing. So, of course, you will have some politicians who will then take advantage of that reputation loss, reputation lack. And they're not thinking about how much people are making decisions based on emotions, based on what they feel about these companies, which is what reputation is, how you feel about a company. So if you feel bad about a company, you're really not going to care if the politicians are going to break them apart or you'll cheer, you'll support the politicians who will break them apart because these companies are doing bad things like disrupting the... like leaving scooters all over your streets. You know, I don't like that. I don't like it that they're, I have scooters all over my sidewalk. But if it's Lime or Bird doing it, 
you know, those are small companies. You know, you're not really going to break them up. But if Uber is doing it and Lyft is doing it, then they're going to get in trouble and they will have some serious consequences. Excellent. So we're uh, we're heading on to the downside here. We've got a, a few minutes left and I, I don't want to run out of time. First off, uh, let me just uh, ask you so we can deal with this in a timely manner. We've got about five, six, seven minutes left. Uh, let's Let's talk first about... Um, anything that we've missed in our time today? Any last thoughts? You've also got a new book that'll be coming out in, in a couple of months, I believe. I'd love to just give a, a little bit of talk to that, and uh, and then we'll and then we'll wind up. So let's take about three or four minutes. I, anything that we've missed? Yes, yeah, something that we've missed, and I want to make sure that people recognize is that what you're doing here is you're not simply saying that emotions are bad, gut reactions are bad. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about retraining yourself, retraining your emotions, retraining your intuitions. You know, the same way that you learned to hopefully avoid that third chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> you, in I haven't learned seven, that yet, but thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, fifth chocolate chip cookie. Right? <laughs> in the Savannah environment, it was very important for us to eat as much sugar as possible. That was critical for our survival. So we're the descendants of all of those who, when they found you know, uh, honey, <laughs> from, you know, honeybees or whatnot, or lots of fruit, they were able to eat all that fruit and they, you know, their stomach might hurt, but they had the food that they needed to survive. Well, right now, we're not in an environment where we should eat all the sugar that we can find. But unfortunately, we still have that instinct, which is why we have the obesity epidemic here in America. So you hopefully have learned, many of you, that you should probably stop at the third chocolate chip cookie. Otherwise, your health is going to be bad. So you've learned how to protect your physical fitness, but you haven't learned how to protect your mental fitness. You haven't learned how to change your mental habits. You've learned how to change your eating habits or some of the physical fitness habits, but you haven't learned how to change your gut reactions, your mental habits to be adapted to what the future needs, which is we're living in a world that's very different from the savannah. So you need to make sure that you're mentally fit and you use these cutting edge decision-making strategies to adapt and survive in the modern world, which will be increasingly disrupted going forward. So using these simple yet counterintuitive techniques is what you need to do to survive and thrive in the future and make sure that your descendants and make sure that you leave the descendants that you want so that's the kind of a mental fitness the concept the broader concept behind what i'm talking about here and my next book the blind spots between us how to overcome unconscious cognitive bias and build better relationships focuses exclusively and specifically on relationships professional relationships personal relationships friendships civic interactions whatever looking at all of these relationships again we have a lot of problems in how we develop our relationships because of tribalism and, and a number of other cognitive biases associated with tribalism. So you want to learn about what are all of these cognitive biases, how they cause 40% divorce rates and how, you know, which people don't notice. I mean, there's a lot of people who, when they divorce, one of the partners who's handed the divorce papers is very surprised when they're handed the divorce papers. You know, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to make sure that you're able to effectively, collaboratively deal with your relationships and that they thrive in the workplace and in the home and in civic communities, relationships with your friends and family as well. So that's what my next book is about. The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships out in April 2020 with the great psychology publisher, New Harbinger. Well, Dr. Sapersky, I thoroughly enjoyed the book I'm, I'm reading, Never Go With Your Gut. I've enjoyed our time today and I really look forward to your new book, Blind Spots. Anyone who's uh, who's got to make decisions, which I think encounters all of us uh, <laughs> that are humans, um, Never Go With Your Gut is an excellent resource for that. Uh, it's very easy to read. It's well organized. Uh, I, I just endorse it heartily. Thank you for being on our program today. Thank you so very much for inviting me, Ron. It's a pleasure to share my expertise with folks, and I hope they benefit. Well, I hope they do as well. I hope they buy your books. And uh, one more time, how do people uh, reach you? Let's give your website again. DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com is the website where there's a lot of blogs, videos, podcasts, articles, 
there's manuals, manu multimedia packages and services like consulting, coaching, and training. Make sure to go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video, eight module video-based course. So again, eight modules, video-based modules, free course on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. It's Decision Making 101 called the Wise Decision Maker course. And connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. Happy to answer questions. Dr. Gleb Sapursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Excellent, excellent. Well, this is uh, an end to our program. Again, we're, uh, you can find us uh, chatting with Ron. You can find us on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, dozens of places on our website, ronbushconsulting.com, and find us on WVLP. It's an excellent radio station, and they do a, a great deal of, of good things in the community. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Sapersky, and have a great day.